All right, welcome to the Canvas Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervella. The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored by GE Aerospace. The LM2500 family of marine gas turbines are renowned for being the workhorse for the U.S. Navy and 38 navies around the world. Find out more about GE Aerospace's marine engines and systems at geaerospace.com slash marine. And by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII delivering the advantage. Coming up, we talk fleet size, force posture, and budget priorities with longtime defense thinker and author Mackenzie Eglin of American Enterprise Institute. But first, a look at Naval News this week. As was widely reported, U.S. forces struck late February 2nd at Iranian-related targets in Syria and Iraq in retaliation for an unmanned aerial drone attack on January 28th that killed three U.S. service members and injured 34 more at a logistics base in Jordan near the Syrian border. As we record this, there is no information that U.S. Navy forces were involved in these latest strikes, but the White House said this was the first of several strikes expected to continue in the coming days. Meanwhile, Houthi attacks on shipping continued in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden, even as U.S. and U.K. forces continued to selectively strike Houthi missiles, launch and control sites in Yemen. On January 26, a Houthi anti-ship missile hit the Marshall Islands-flagged oil tanker Marlin Luanda, who caught fire in the Gulf of Aden. Destroyer USS Kearney, French frigate Alsace, and the Indian destroyer Visakhapatnam helped rescue the tanker's crew and fight fires on the ship, and the fires were eventually extinguished on January 28th. Kearney, along with destroyer USS Gravely in the Red Sea, also shot down Houthi missiles and destroyed what U.S. CENTCOM said were three Iranian UAVs during the week. And on February 1st, a Houthi unmanned explosive boat was destroyed heading towards shipping in the Red Sea. Deployed aircraft carriers Carl Vincent, CVN-70, and Theodore Roosevelt, CVN-71, operated together in the Philippine Sea on January 31st, joined by the Japanese helicopter carrier Icy for what was termed a multi-large deck event. Carl Vincent has been deployed only since October, while TR left San Diego in mid-January. It's expected one of the strike groups could move on to the Mideast region and relieve the Dwight D. Eisenhower CVN-69 in U.S. Central Command. British carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth reportedly is ready to deploy from Portsmouth, England on February 4th to take part in NATO exercise Steadfast Defender in the North Sea. British media in late January have been reporting that the UK Ministry of Defense has decided to send one of Britain's two carriers to the Mideast, but so far have declined to say which of the Royal Navy's two carriers could go. HMS Prince of Wales, the other carrier, also is at Portsmouth, undergoing pierside maintenance. And in new ship news, the amphibious dock transport ship Richard M. McCool Jr., LPD-29, completed builder's sea trials at the end of January. 
HII's Ingold Shipbuilding announced on February 1st. The McCool is the second Flight 1 Plus variant of the San Antonio LPD-17 class of ships. The ship is expected to be delivered to the U.S. Navy later this year, following successful acceptance trials. Three more Flight 2 LPDs are building at Ingalls, although further procurement has been suspended by the Pentagon pending further study. And in old ship news, a ceremony was held February 2nd at Naval Sea Systems Command to mark the stand-up of the CVN Inactivation and Disposal Program Office, or PMS-368. The office will oversee the disposal of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, beginning with Enterprise CVN-65, now stored at Newport News, Virginia. Disposal of each of the nuclear carriers will be phenomenally expensive, estimated to be well over a billion dollars each. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval News. All right. It is time for the discussion portion of the podcast. We are very pleased to be joined by Mackenzie Eglund. Uh, Mackenzie is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, where she works on defense strategy, defense budgets, and military readiness. Uh, before joining AEI, Mackenzie worked on defense issues in the House of Representatives, the Senate, at the Pentagon. For most of our listeners, Mackenzie is no stranger to naval and budget issues. Mackenzie, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I love being with you guys. Oh, this is uh, fantastic. You've written a number of articles and op-eds uh, over the last month uh, or two that have really, um, you, you know, if, if you follow uh, navalists and uh, strategists on uh, on social media, that you've spawned a lot of uh, discussion. I want to start with the one that came out in mid-January uh, titled America's Incredible Shrinking Navy. Um, and I want to just start with, you, you know, your sort of view and why, you know, the high points from that, and then talk about, you know, the repercussions of uh, a shrinking Navy and some ways that maybe the uh, Navy leadership needs to be thinking about as they put the final touches on the 25 budget, but also start to think about 26 and 27, you, you know, how do we arrest that uh, reduction and and where, where should they be putting resources? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, good. Thanks. Thanks again for having me and for this important conversation. I continue to be struck by Chris Cavus's awesome Twitter feed when I do get to log on, which is not very often. Um, and the, this, if it's not a record-breaking, you know, global deployment temp operations tempo for the Navy, it's pretty darn close right now. Obviously, you know, three theaters uh, across the globe need uh, active management by the U.S. Navy and sailors and ships and. You know, two two war zones and one region where you know it's like a it's a simmering pot that's boiling with water, ready to to, to boil over any moment in Asia and in Indo Pacom. And you know, it, so I'm worried. I, I I know why we need all these. You know, I, why we continue to need um, global presence, but also naval responses to obviously what's happening in the Red Sea to keep shipping lanes open and everything. But I keep getting concerned because. These record deployments, or you know, like I said, at or near, you know, but the fleet keeps shrinking. If you just kind of look back over the recent past, and of course, this is not picking on any party or White House because everybody does it. Every single year, there's more ships retired than our new construction built and delivered to the Navy, and obviously, that is a recipe for decline. It's been it's the the Navy has been declining, and this is a choice. 
Now I know there's, it's, there's industrial base throughput issues. There's money in the supplemental for the submarine industrial base. I, I understand there's a lot of issues here at play, um, but you know, like just take amphibs, for example, right? Uh, the, the Pentagon has had a, what they call a strategic pause on the construction of amphibs when the requirement is set in law and they're look, it seems like it'll be likely that it's, it'll be a third year of pause in construction that's a choice. That's the kind of choice I'm talking about, which uh, where where Washington is choosing decline and shrinking, and the world, of course, is not getting any smaller. So, Chris and I have talked about on the podcast a, a number of times um, the frustrating, the additional frustrating piece to what you just outlined is that the Navy seems to be the worst advocate for their own interests. Right? Hmm. Um, there is uh, bipartisan support on the Hill to. I would say at least arrest the uh, reduction compared to growth, right? To try to get that at least to a one-to-one, if if not to get it on the right side of the curve. Um, there has been experts like yourself uh, that have advocated for a, an increase in naval spending and in naval growth. And yet there does not seem to be a voice within the Pentagon, within the Department of the Navy that um, you know, lends some lift to those arguments. I wonder if you could just comment on that a little bit and, you know, Navy's message, Navy's approach to this, because they're not really helping themselves. I totally agree with that. And, you know, we saw this with the Air Force in the, you know, 2010 timeframe, but, you know, where I called it like the yes man service, you know, just the head down, we're just enablers, you know, we don't, no advocates for air power for a decade. And, but the difference then was their chief and secretary got sacked in a very public way by the secretary of defense. So I understood what had changed at the top and the culture of you know the Air Force leaders for honestly a generation was don't advocate for air power in my my personal opinion. And I and, and I agree that's that's kind of seems to be what's taken over the the third deck as they call it um, uh, at in the Pentagon, you know, Navy leadership, and and it must be the cues from the civilians, right? And part of it is the constant um, review of shipbuilding plans, the amphibious fleet right. construction pause that I'm talking about for LPDs, um, the endless, you know, like I said, churn of, you know, how big should the Navy be? And even this, this commission on the future of the Navy, which the department uh, is actively, potentially actively, you know, opposing, um, all signals, uh, to me, you know, the civilian leadership seems to be signaling to uniformed leadership to, to do what you're talking about. Don't advocate for more ships, right? We know the gospel of this administration has been divest to invest and the divest is immediate the invest is over the medium and longer term. And that's the problem. And I, and if it were an immediate investment, right, meaning you're cutting things that exist, retiring early, for example, ships, the invest in theory, even though the money never works that way, it goes into research and development, mm-hmm. not procurement, where you know you you have output and product and, and things delivered to the fleet at scale. That's that's fine, but it's going to, things will be delivered on somebody else's watch. And so I, I actually think it's not fine, I guess I should say. So I'm taking issue with a lot of, of things, but I, I I think Navy leaders have taken their cue and from civilian leadership, I guess is what I'm saying. So that's really where that, the buck stops. Um, but if there were, you know, senior leaders speaking up in uniform, I think 
that would, you know, I think that would be even more important because of what civilians are signaling and cueing. You know, in private, I'll close with this story. I was with a senior uniform Navy leader in the last week, and they talked about the four navies, right? So you had the Cold War Navy and, you know, the Reagan buildup, right? Obviously, you know, not quite 600 ships by the end. Then, you know, end of history, peace dividend, procurement holiday Navy, where, you know, everything got slashed. You know, it was peace forever. Peace broke out. Of course, no peace broke out. Uh, and then there was the war on terror Navy. And then you have whatever we have today, you know, like I said, a three theater, you know, management Navy. Brian McGrath and I have called it a, a three hub Navy. Um, but it's, that's what they're doing, but they're living with still the Navy of 1991 or the 90s, right? The one that got cut. And so that you see this huge mismatch and the gap there. So privately, Navy leaders are well aware. Publicly, they really need to find their voice and start talking. You're right. There is sympathy, money, and attention on the Hill. I'll, I'll add just one thing. I mean, what what I really saw working, um, you know, towards the end of my career with the folks that were um, in senior leader positions at the uh, during the Trump administration and that are there now was there's a lot of scar tissue from all three or, or the first three of those navies that you um, you mentioned. A lot of them were junior officers. Uh, at the end of the Reagan buildup, um, and they found themselves tied to the pier or whatever their community version of being tied to the pier was. So there was they they you know sort of vowed I think to themselves that they never wanted to be in a navy that was too big uh, to to be able to operate. Uh, they all lived through the um, you know the Clinton drawdown um, and and what that navy looked like, uh, and then they all sort of felt either marginalized or. Uh, thrown into desert camis uh, outside of their communities when they were, um, you know, 06s. So um, I, I think that, you know, my personal opinion is that scar tissue, that PTSD, um, you know, makes that makes it really difficult for them to advocate for the type of Navy that maybe they instinctively know um, or hear about from other advocates, you know, it, it it keeps them from sort of figuring out, okay, how do I grow the Navy? How do I get a Navy that that makes sense on the world stage without falling into one of those uh, those three traps? I mean, that, that's mm. sort of my my opinion and kind of something that we've talked about uh, on uh, on the podcast before. Chris, I'll throw it over to you. McKenzie, I, uh, I want to throw something else at you, and that's, you know, you go back 20 years. Uh, 2003, 2004, 2002. Um, we are, it, it's the beginning of the war on terror. We're in these, this long campaign in Afghanistan. Um, then we invade Iraq. We're in a long campaign in a big land war that nobody at all foresaw two or three years in advance of that. And there's a huge effort to build up the army. Um, this is where all the emphasis is. Uh, service leaders, I mean, I mean, Vern Clark, former chief of naval operations, at, well, at the time, um, routinely on a almost a daily basis, spoke out loud to any audience anywhere, new Navy audiences, about I'm not, you know, I, I'm not in the Pentagon fighting for our one third of the budget. You know, we need to we need to reinvest in the Army right now in in a land campaign. And I'm all for that. You know, we're we're moving funds within the Pentagon over to the Army. Air Force leadership did the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it all made perfect sense. And by the way, of those, 
you know, very broadly, you know, it's it's a lot easier to invest in and build up an army in a relatively short period of time than it is to build up an air force or a navy. Mm -hmm. um, it just takes a whole lot longer and a whole lot more money. And um, an army, you can you actually can order a truck and get a truck in eight or nine months, and you can actually, you know, induct a uh, or draft or or just um, take a take a new recruit. And turn them into a into a soldier in a few months. It's a lot harder to do that in the Navy and the Air Force. We hear constantly about there's there should be a sense of urgency. Time is running out. Uh, we heard Admiral Paparo's um, confirmation this week uh, in front of the Senate to become uh, the new uh, head of U.S. Indo-PACOM. Uh, you know, Maisie Hirono brings up right away the 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 uh, Davidson window of you know time is closing in where the Chinese are going to take offensive action somewhere, and yet. There seems to be no sense of urgency anywhere. There's okay. there's talk of we have to have a sense of urgency, and then that's fine. What are you doing to meet that? Mm -hmm. And and you don't see it anywhere. Moreover, you don't see calls within the Pentagon or anywhere else to not just for more defense spending per se, which is always problematic on some level, uh, but a redirection of funds within the Pentagon like what like was going on 20 years ago, routinely, enthusiastically going on 20 years ago. Okay, well, now we're in a long-term conflict with, with China, a conflict hot and cold, who knows, prepare for everything. But it's primarily overwhelming a land, a, a maritime conflict. This is not a land con conflict. Russia's invasion of Ukraine two years ago sort of restated the need for a, for a standing army. And you know we have we have more troops in Europe now than we did two years ago, but the long term need here seems to be for more resources in the Navy. And everything going on in the Red Sea and the Mediterranean right now in the Gulf of Aden is primarily naval assets, mm -hmm. um, and it's you know these are standing assets. And by the way, you know presence matters for for this discussion that was going on a year or two ago about. You know, we need to think about drawing back and, you know, not 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 burning our ships up and sending them out all the time. Presence makes a big difference. Yes. And having ships on scene when something occurs, as just it just happened, makes a big difference. And but but there's no you know, where are the calls to redirect existing resources into naval related Areas and I'm talking broadly. I'm not talking about ships. Talking about everything: the infrastructure, um, supply chain, the whole the whole bit. But yep. there's no discussion that that we heard hugely, endlessly, repeatedly drummed into everybody 20 years ago. We got to put. We got to redirect resources in the army. It doesn't happen though. I mean, what do you count for that? I mean, why? Yeah. You know, you're writing about this. You're trying to. To, to point this out it's self-evident to an awful lot of people it's not a political issue for the vast majority of people mm -hmm. it's one of those one of those areas where just where most informed people on any of, of any party agree what's I, going uh, on yeah there's so much to unpack there man Sorry, I have that was so a many long things. that was a long diatribe but i was i was quiet for a while okay yeah no i love I, it i i just uh -huh. I, oh gosh i, I want to remember all my points not to mention what uh, yes, so you referenced the Indo-PACOM commander, you know, future hearing this week. But then there was um, an Intel community hearing in the last week where General Nakasone, 
of the NSA called the threat from China a challenge unlike any right. our nation has ever faced, meaning in our entire history. And basically said China is going to shut down the water supply and right. kill Americans. Uh, they're going to go after, you know, high uh, counter value targets if we defend Taiwan. It, it's terrifying stuff. Right. Um, but I, I, let me go back to Vern Clark, because that's, I think, about the time you and I met, because I remember, you know, let's also go back to that era, too, because what was what were Navy leaders talking about? And I know it's easy in hindsight to pick on everybody, but it kind of did lay the groundwork for a lot of the inertia that we you talked about, the lack of urgency that we see today. Um, two chiefs in a row. It, it was Brownwater Navy. And then it was a thousand ship Navy, the Mullen solution, meaning like, well, we can shrink, but we got all these allies and, you know, as if like their navies are humongous or something. And as if as if it's a substitute to your point, like when Houthis fire missiles, there's one service in one country in the world that's responding ours. And yes, the UK is helping a little bit, but everyone needs our missiles and can't really do much without us in terms. So we've provided the munitions. So. You know, the, those two ideas sort of got into the bloodstream, I guess, and maybe a little too much. And and, and to um, Chris's earlier point on, you know, how it sort of changed the the culture for a, a generation. And, and so we're, we're seeing that. But I agree. I, I want to hammer your point on the lack of urgency in the Department of Defense. I see this everywhere, all services except the Army because of Ukraine and you know, and it's, 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 it's you know, like pockets of the army. Like, you know, I've heard Doug Bush basically like we're an army at war. His office definitely is because they got to get stuff out the door fast uh, at scale and to us and to allies. And so, yeah, I, obviously with a heavy emphasis on munitions, but that's really about it. In fact, what I've seen is Pentagon contracting goes slower <laughs> in the last three years or five or whatever like everything is like slowing down right at the moment to your point chris we need to go faster and everything and if i had to tell you what i think is going on there is because the department's solution is record research and development um next generation technology you know will save us the problem is it never arrives on time and at scale so for example for the navy's case directed energy, how long we've we been hearing that that's going to save the fleet. Third offset strategy redux is basically what I see happening here. What I, and, and you see that imbalance inside the defense budget, where in the Reagan buildup, you had a three to one ratio procurement dollar to R&D. This administration, and even starting in the last administration, it's now about one to one. That is an unhealthy ratio of research and development to procurement. And what you see is nothing is being built. And to your point on the, the long lead time for capital intensive services, which the Navy and the Air Force are, that is um, the, th the one to one ratio procurement to R&D is how you break a service. You go hollow pretty fast. And that's what I argue is I would argue is happening. And then the other answer is, well, replicator. You know, we, we are doing stuff. Look what we're doing. Uh how many, you know, we have, we have a DIU, we have a, a software lab, we got a at works, you know, pick your works program, soft works, AF works. Those are the, all of the answers. Washington thinks technology and particularly software is airborne, <laughs> like a virus. It has to go in and on something like a ship <laughs> to help deliver effects. Um, 
So there's this overemphasis, I guess, on the ones and zeros, software and technology, and not enough on the things that will carry or enable or utilize those, you know, R&D solutions like energy, AI, all these other things, directed energy. But so, shouldn't we shouldn't we be able to do both, right? Isn't there a case? Yes. I mean, you know, th- this sort of binary decision between building great things and and you know putting new advanced things on those great things, they really yep. shouldn't compete with each other, right? Uh, I agree, they shouldn't. And that gets a Chris's other point, which is you know where where's the call to either uh, you know redirect resources within the defense budget and or grow it because you know, I call it the paradox of scarcity in the defense budget of largesse. What I have found is there's so there's so few malleable dollars for, you know, inside the defense budget. Most of the money's sort of fenced off from touching it, mill purrs, pay raises, operations and maintenance, civilian salaries, healthcare. And so the reason, you know, people end up calling for bigger defense budgets is not because they just are greedy and want more. It's because if you want to have change in defense military outcomes, you pretty much have to be additive with the dollars because there's, unless you want to take on unions, um, depots, right? Districts, bases, you know, the, all the things that nobody's going to take on. And that is why dollar defense budgets have to constantly grow. It's not because people are greedy or stupid. And, um, but there's calls for neither really, except in one place, which we keep going back to Capitol Hill. The problem is, as we know now, the dysfunction is so overwhelming. So what we saw on the Hill, I'll close with this, for three years was one committee, one party and one chamber was leading the charge. Senate defense authorizing uh, Republicans were pushing for budgets, you know, 40, 50 billion above the president's budget every year. Then the House flips and now we're seeing uh, a world uh, where the chaos caucus leads and you're going to see defense budgets not even keep up with inflation. And that's also terrifying because you're, the department has to, as, as Bob work said, cut to exist. If you don't get a budget on inflation, you're going to double cut. And so what, that's where you get, a, like I said, on the amphibs, you're going to get, a, you're going to see a third year, no construction. And so it, my long way of saying Congress can't do it alone to, to your point, Chris. So I, I hate to be doom and gloom, but it's not great. And I, and I fear that, you know, Washington doesn't react until there's like a total crisis or a failure or, you know, a task force Smith or a McCain and Fitz, you know, awful, terrible things happen. And then people sort of are moved to action. But to your point, even if they are moved, it's going to take years to recover this and sustained attention from civilian leadership to do it. You wonder, I mean, so yeah, I mean, essentially you're talking about a wake up call and a wake up call maybe not the biggest thunderclap you ever heard, but certainly a rumble of thunder is what's going on in the Mideast right now. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's demonstrable. It's happening virtually hourly. It has a an immediate impact on world commerce that eventually is going to start showing up in everybody's pocketbook. And, mm-hmm. and yet the Navy is on the front line and they're starting to loosen this hold that they've had on this clampdown on talking about it. Uh, you know, even this this past week, we had two, two network embarks on ships in the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, which is nice. But, you know, again, this is, that's a, yeah, you, you, you have, you have to break the dam somewhere, but that it's late and it's, it's, you should have been doing this all along. Um, I hope that helps. 
because you're you're not you're not really even uh, cheerleading this stuff. You're showing what the world is like. You know, of course, mm -hmm. Americans like to be at home, and they don't really have a great awareness of what's going on all around the world. Present company, you know, excluded. But a lot of people just don't don't know and don't really care. Um, and this is this 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 is good stuff. But again, we're not really showing it. Just show just 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 allow it to be seen. Um, and that I find that frustrating because this is a clarion call. This is a presence matters. Ships do things. You know, there are threats out there. There are bad people out there, and um, they're bad to a lot of people, including us, including other people. And, um, you know, the U.S. Navy tends to be a bulwark on that sort of thing. Um, you, I do wish there was more chatter about, you know, sort of how the military, right? There's general, you know, Americans don't take the time to think, you know, like we, there's a reason our military focuses outward and we have domestic law enforcement and, you know, other agencies focused inward on continental United States. But that outward focus by the Navy and Marine Corps and the Coast Guard, right, has a direct impact on our everyday lives, particularly economically, um, particularly the service, you know, the Navy, and you know, in terms of keeping the cost of goods down, which, you know, people notice when gas prices go up. But, the you know, the Navy is part of the reason there's stability in global oil prices. Unquestionably, uh, it's why, you know, there's price competition for sneakers at the Walmart because there's so many choices because the Navy keeps those shipping lanes open and the internet runs, you know, every day when you log on, it would be nice if leaders sort of started to did a better job making that case. Sorry, Chris, go ahead. Other Chris. No, I, I, well, I mean, I would start with them first reading their own talking points and believing it and then making the case. Right. I mean, that, <laughs> that's sort of my, my uh, larger concern. And I don't, I don't mean to be glib, but it, it's uh, it, it's, it's frustrating because again, we've, we've been sort of hammering this theme for the last month that like, Hey, this is sea power's time to shine. Uh, you know, read your own talking points and get, get out there and, and, and sell it. Um, I, I want to, in the couple minutes that we have left, cause I, I want to respect your time, but you know, there were a lot of us that uh, when uh, when Congress, um, I guess it's two NDAAs ago, Congress, um, you know, put forth this commission on the future of the Navy. Uh, and there was, you know, real hope, I guess, among navalists and strategists that this could be the venue to maybe help uh, get to a wake up moment short of conflict. Mm -hmm. um, but that's really not gone anywhere. Uh, you, you were uh, designated as a commissioner and a lot of us were really excited to see names like yours and uh, Brian McGrath's and others. Um, can you give us an update on where we think that effort is and maybe why it's been so slow to get up and going? Yes. Uh, well, I can give you an update and then I'll speculate <laughs> on the second part. I am frustrated like you. You know, the Army and the Air Force both both had independent congressional commissions established um, in the last decade as well by Congress. And that it's a sign that Congress is really, really worried. And, you know, like both were deserving of, of it. The, the, in the Army's case, it was it was their um, helicopter fleet overhaul that sort of pushed it. And then, you know, it was the it became a family feud uh, inside the Army between specialties and groups and everything. And in the Air Force's case, it was all the downsizing, and then uh, uh, the family feud was between the Guard, Reserve, and active components. And then Congress is like, "All right, we got to fix this." So the Navy, you know, it's 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 the Navy's time. And you know, if you go, it, it makes sense because if you go back to the la the tail end of the last administration, the Secretary of Defense 
repeatedly talked about a Navy going hollow and how that was like the thing that kept Mark Esper up at night. And I share that concern. And that was, you know, four, three, four years ago. Um, so, and, and I think Congress believes that if you look at the sordid, awful, you know, if we, if you look at the challenges the Navy has faced from fat Leonard to today and what has happened, you know, and, and all of the in-betweens, I actually wrote a document sort of what ails the Navy. And when I put it all in one place, it, it was, it was a horrifying list. So I won't go through all that here. You guys, you two are well familiar with that, but, um, and, and, and no, no disrespect to, to sailors and, and Marines and Coast Guards. And of course, um, so Congress sees all that. They see the trend lines, not just ships, but, you know, just in terms of problems with culture, problems with senior leader uh, behavior, problems, you know, big problems. And they stood at this commission. And what's happened is uh, there was. Uh, every Republican in Congress appointed their commissioners near immediately and no Democrats did. I don't know why. And then after, you know, pressure behind the scenes from members to each other, uh, there's only one com one person who hasn't appointed their, their commissioner, which means therefore we can't stand up. And that is the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. And again, I don't know why. Uh, Jack, Jack I, Reed. Yeah. So I, I can speculate, though, that I believe everyone knows what the commission's going to say and don't and and and, and just don't want it to be said right now. And, and perhaps being whispered from inside the Pentagon to the Hill. So that's my speculation. It's not great. Well, on that really <laughs> not not very happy note, uh, Mackenzie, I know you got to go. Uh, folks, our guest has been Mackenzie Eglin, Defense and Foreign Policy Analyst for the American Enterprise Institute. Mackenzie, thank you for coming on the podcast. Please come back again. Uh, I, th I think you do good work, and it's it's really great to hear you. Thanks for having me. There's so much more to talk about. I could really do this all day with you two. Thanks for what you do to have these discussions and keep pushing the rock uphill because we got to do it. I mean, eventually someone is going to listen to us. <laughs> all right. Thanks again. Thanks. Now hear this. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. You know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box. And this week, Mr. Cavus talks about the importance of underway embarks on board U.S. Navy ships. Thanks, Chris. Well, this past week, the White House is tight lid on showing U.S. Navy activities in the Mideast and Eastern Mediterranean eased just a bit. Reporting teams from CBS News and ABC News, including CBS primary news anchor Nora O'Donnell, reported from onboard several warships in the Med and the Red Seas. It was a welcome respite from the limited, albeit continual, press releases and near-negligible imagery that has accompanied U.S. Navy activities in the region since the Israel-Hamas war broke out in October. As regular listeners to this podcast know, both of us believe that getting the word out via independent media to show what the U.S. Navy does is a foundation to creating better awareness of the importance of what the sea services do. There is no better path to believing in something than seeing it in action. That's why I lobbied the Navy, successfully, I might add, several years ago, to allow media on board the carrier Gerald R. Ford at sea to see the world's most expensive ship up close and get a better feel for why it took seemingly forever to finish it and what the real problems were. 
Up to that point, no media had been allowed on board while the ship was at sea for its protracted series of trials, and the buzz around the ship and the Ford class program was almost universally negative. And somehow that changed. As more and more media were allowed to see the ship and, equally importantly, talk to its people and report on it, the public narrative gradually changed. To be sure, thousands of people were working very hard, mostly behind the scenes, to make that happen, but the word simply was not getting out. The ship's shakedown deployment in the fall of 2022 allowed even more people to see and report on the ship, including international visits in Canada and to the United Kingdom. Then last May, the Ford got underway for her maiden full deployment on station in the Mediterranean as a display of American intentions in the European theater. Multiple media embarks reported enthusiastically on the ship, and by all accounts, the deployment, extended due to the Mideast War, was a great success. The ship, its crew, and the entire program have moved on from the constant negative narrative that accompanied the program virtually from its inception. The Navy, its people, and the industry that support it all made that happen, but it needed to be reported on fairly and impartially. The same thing applies to what the Navy and the U.S. is doing now, not just in the Mideast, but also in the Western Pacific and around the world. Media embarks, the working term for extended visits on board a Navy ship at sea, deserve to be supported by the Pentagon and the country's top leadership. It's nice that the doors opened a bit this week for the biggest media entities, network television, but much more can still be done. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of media requests for similar embarks. The Pentagon should act now to allow on board more reporters, not just mainstream major media, but trade press and international media as well. If you want people to trust and appreciate you, you're going to have to trust and appreciate what they can do for you. You are absolutely right, Chris. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavishes podcast is sponsored by GE Aerospace. The LM2500 family of marine gas turbines are renowned for being the workhorse for the U.S. Navy and 38 navies around the world. Find out more about GE Aerospace's marine engines and systems at geaerospace.com marine. And by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.